just prompted by the Spirit to share that, which is a pretty open, vulnerable thing to be sharing. And so please respond to the Spirit as he speaks to you and prompts you this week to continue to pray for them of what God might do in those boys' lives. I want to take a few minutes and talk about some announcements and then we'll jump into tonight's message, which is a concluding message about the theme of the Holy Spirit, of us being open to him and responsive to him and in fact not hindering his influence in our lives individually or for that matter corporately. Uh, to remind you, all this stuff is in the bulletin, but Care Outreach and Operation, Operation Christmas Child are things that conclude uh, this month. Operation Christmas Child, 24th of October. So shoebox idea of putting gifts in that and it'll go overseas to some uh, child in a needy situation who uh, will not receive any other gifts except those which come in that box this year. And so it's a great opportunity for us to demonstrate God's love, God's care uh, for people in needy situations. So I commend that to you. Details are in the bulletin. And then Care Outreach is the same. It's not overseas, but it's our state. It's the western part of our state of farmers, several hundred farming families um, who likewise, in desperate situations, will not have a great Christmas, but whom we can make an impact for. Details of what you can give, whether financially or gifts, are in the bulletin. And the deadline for that, I think, is the end of this month. Next, <clears throat> uh, just for you to know, our 8.45 service is changing times. It's going earlier by 15 minutes to an 8.30 time slot. So our three services on Sunday at the beginning of November are going to be 8.30, 10.30 and 6.30. So if ever you feel prompted, led by the Spirit to go to the first service, then you need to turn up at 8.30, not 8.45. That starts 6th of November. Uh, it's to create a little bit more time lag in that service which is the most pressured service that we have. Next. Uh, you've heard about Yong. Uh, he shared with you tonight. It's on uh, 29th of October from memory. It costs you seven bucks. The details are in the bulletin. It's going to be a, a wonderful experience where you're going to have Thai food and have games together, but also learn about what God is doing in their life and how you can participate in it and support them through it. Details are in the bulletin. Have a look. And then Pastor David, who was... No? Um... This is something that's happening in the morning service and not in the evening service. Uh, it's designed for our 2 Timothy series. Uh, we're not doing it at the night service. Next Sunday we start new series. We start 2 Timothy in the morning and we start the book of Judges at night. We're finishing the theme of the Holy Spirit tonight. So next Sunday night will be the book of Judges and this has no relevance to you at all. Um, but I don't even know if it's in your bulletins. Did you get that in your bulletins, this connect thing? There's a form, a card. Did you get that? Okay, good. Let's move on. You don't need to know. That's not for you. Maybe next year. Depending, we're trialling it. If it goes well in the morning service, then we may very well duplicate it and include it at night. But if you go to morning church or if, if you don't go to morning church, repent. <laughs> Holy Spirit. We have been considering over the couple of months now, Pastor David has primarily led I don't think I've been here since he started that series, have I? My name is Daryl. I'm the senior pastor of this church. <laughs> I'm married to Rhonda. I have two... Uh -huh. So just to encapsulate very, very quickly, um, the Spirit of God is God's incredible gift to us. He, in fact, is God. He is God within us. Um, he's not just um, like the Father or, or like Jesus or similar to them. Uh, he is 
whenever you talk about the Trinity, you always get in trouble. But anyway, he is a, a duplicate of them. He is exactly like them. What have I said now? Um, he is not almost God. He's not similar to God. He is fully God. Um, and he is sent from the Father by Jesus to dwell and live in us, to empower us and to enable us to become more like um, the Lord Jesus. Um, in the Old Testament, he was certainly incredibly active in people's lives and doing all sorts of things, kings and rulers, prophets and judges, um, but also empowering at a very practical level of people who built the temple and the tabernacle and so on. He is essential to us as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus. We can't be saved without the Spirit. He convicts us, he calls us, he converts us, he challenges us, he causes us to have faith, gives us the gift of repentance, he causes us to be reborn. That's all the work of the Spirit. We comply, we accept, we willingly respond to that, but it's his work in us that is enabling that to happen. Through the same Spirit we have assurance that we are saved, that we belong to God. It's the Spirit who nudges us and says, you're mine. You belong to God. You're a child of God. His Spirit witnesses with our spirit, the Bible says. We can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. We can't understand the Bible without him. We can't pray without him. Uh, Romans 8 says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself prays for us with groans that are inexpressible. We can't pray without the Spirit. We can't serve without him. He gives us gifts. And we certainly can't witness without him. He empowers us for that. He is essential for us as followers of the Lord Jesus. Generally speaking, broadly speaking, there are two large groups in the world. There is one group of people who belong to Jesus and the kingdom of God, and there are those who don't. There are believers and there are unbelievers. For those who are believers who belong to the kingdom of God, they have accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour and they have received the gift of the Spirit who indwells them and does all these sorts of things in them. For those who are not yet transferred from the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of unbelief, the kingdom of darkness, um, they are without the Spirit. As you enter the kingdom of Jesus, you permanently received his gift, the Spirit of God, who is a seal of our salvation. He is not a second blessing. He is not an optional extra. He is given to all Christians, to all believers, to assist us to become all that God wants us to be. Now, We've spoken about this, David has spoken about this over the last couple of months of how the Spirit was prepared, how he was promised, how he came, how he fills, how he gifts, uh, how he demonstrates and develops in us the character of the Lord Jesus through his fruit. But all teaching, any teaching about the Holy Spirit would be incomplete if we don't at some point pause and say, well, the Bible also teaches us that it's possible for us to hinder, for us to resist, for us to... Um, obstruct the work of the Spirit in us. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. There is a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody, but also then the Holy Spirit would leave. It would be, he would be a temporary guest, a temporary impartation of power. Uh, Samson, there are many examples, but Samson is one, and it's a sad one. And we'll come to look at him in a few weeks as we begin a series next Sunday night on the book of Judges. But Samson is a man who was greatly gifted by God, and a man who had the Spirit come, the Bible says, the Spirit came on him, empowered him, gave him great strength and great ability. But he made some dumb choices through his own folly, through his own sinful choices. 
then the Bible records that he didn't know that the Holy Spirit had departed from him. Spirit came and the Spirit left. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and resides permanently in all believers. In fact, the Bible says that if you have not the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit could come and go. In the New Testament, it's no longer the case. But it is possible in this church age, in the age of the Spirit, since Pentecost, since Jesus' death, resurrection and return to the Father, since then this is the age of the, the Spirit, it is possible that he not only indwells us permanently, but he can withdraw the sense of his presence. To us, from a human perspective, it can seem like he's left. He hasn't, because the Bible promises that he will indwell us permanently. He is God's seal of our salvation. The seal's not broken. It's a foretaste, a deposit, a down payment. It's given to us and it's not taken away. But it can, through our own sinful choices, like Samson, he can not leave us, but his sense of his presence, our awareness of what and of his activity in us is softened, declined, uh, it fades. Um, and it's an awful spiritual situation to be in. Um, so he, yes, he can withdraw a sense of his presence. We can lose that influence of his power in our life and if we do lose it then as believers in the Lord Jesus we can also regain it by repentance by returning to our first love that's usually how it operates that's not without exception but that's usually the way it goes so what are the hindrances these sins that we can commit against the spirit well the bible gives us six of them specifically and I want to talk about just some of them tonight the Bible talks about, firstly, and I'm going to talk about this last, it's a controversial and strange one, it's you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And we'll come to read this passage in a moment, Matthew chapter 12. And it talks about how if you blaspheme the Spirit of God, it is the unforgivable sin. All sins are forgivable, except that one. It's the one exception. And what is that referring to? And is it possible for us to commit it? And, you know, what does it mean? What's it like? How, does, how do we explain that? We'll look at that. Uh, Acts chapter 7 talks about, Stephen says, that the Jewish people had resisted the Holy Spirit. And again, talking about people who haven't yet come to faith, people who belong in the, this kingdom, the first kingdom, kingdom of Satan, they resist the influence, the challenge, the call, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They resist him. They hinder what he is challenging them to do. Then the Bible talks about, for those who have entered the kingdom of Jesus, it's quite possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit. We spoke about that this morning. I'll give you a few minutes summary tonight. And tonight also it talks about 1 Thessalonians 5, that we can not only grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit. It's like pouring water on a fire. It's uh, to put out the flame, to dull the influence of. We can do that as believers who are instructed to not do so. So we need to talk about that. Hebrews 10 has, uh, 10 verse 29, another sin of the Spirit, against the Spirit, which is to insult him. Or as the Greek word can be translated, to outrage him. Again, that's of unbelievers. And then finally, a specific example, Acts 5 verse 3 talks about lying to the Spirit, that story of Ananias and Sapphira, who kept back some of the money and said they gave more than what they really 
uh, did give. Um, and Peter challenges them, convicts them, and they actually fall down and drop dead on the spot, both of them, to lie to the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is essential for us as followers of the Lord Jesus, but there are aspects to his work in us that we need to be aware of and tend to. Um, it's not all, you know, smooth sailing. We are responsible creatures and we are to make deliberate choices to walk in obedience. This morning we spoke about grieving the Spirit, so let me give you a quick summary of that and then I want to talk about quenching and then make some sense, I hope, of blasphemy and then leave the building immediately. Grieving the Spirit. How do we grieve him? This morning I said there are three primary ways. The first way is obvious, it's by sin. And it's sin either in the things we do, the things we say, or the things we think. Sins. Uh, doing, thinking, saying things that are not right. They quench, uh, sorry, they grieve him. They disappoint him. They offend him. And that leads to some consequences in our life, which I'll explain in a moment. Not only by sinning, but we can also grieve the Holy Spirit by, secondly, by um, a failure to acknowledge that he is in us. To live our life as if he was absent. Um, just as we would adjust our life by having a person of dignity, of status, uh, come visit us, be that the Queen or the Prime Minister or whoever, a person of great status or significance for us, someone really important, and we would adjust our behaviour accordingly. So the Holy Spirit, who is a divine royal guest living within us, that it's somehow possible that we can ignore or overlook his indwelling. And we live our life almost thumbing our noses at his presence. It grieves and offends him. Third way we can grieve the Spirit is by failing to respond to his promptings. The Spirit of God is always at work within us, prompting us, uh, leading us, guiding us, nudging us, uh, giving us desires that, uh, towards holiness and towards following the Lord Jesus closely, towards obedience. And our response to that can be one of, nah, nah, or postponement, I'll do it later. And these, this failure to respond to his promptings likewise can grieve him. So we can grieve the Spirit by sin, by failure to live in an awareness that he is present with us or by failing to respond to his promptings with us. What happens when we grieve the Spirit? Um, well, there's a loss not of his reality in our life, but there's a loss of this sense of his presence in our life. He withdraws. It's almost like he is present, but he's silent. Or, it's, or he is softer in his voice. It gets softer and softer. It's a decreasing of our awareness of God's love for us, that we're part of his kingdom, a decreasing of our sense of a joy of our salvation. There's a decrease in our awareness or assurance that we are saved and belong to him. There's a decrease in peace. All of these things come from the spirit. And so when we grieve him, these things are negated or decreased in our life. Now, the Bible says that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When we grieve him, that Spirit bearing witness with our spirit goes on hold, is softer. It's not as close, it's not as strong. There's no longer this warm embrace of the spirit with us. When you're singing songs 
of him nudging you and reminding you and saying, that's for you, you belong to me, you're in the kingdom. You're no longer enfolded in his loving presence. You no longer hear this sense of, I love you. No leadings, no promptings. What there in fact is, is if we have grieved the spirit by our sin, by not responding to his promptings, by not living in the light of that he is with us, if we have grieved him, then in fact he almost hands us over to the supremacy of the sinful nature in us, Galatians chapter 5. That passage says that the spirit is in conflict with our sinful nature and the sinful nature is in conflict with the spirit. So when we grieve the spirit, we in fact empower our sinful nature. When we grieve the spirit, it becomes possible for us to indulge and engage in things that surprise us and we no longer feel... Uh, we're shocked by the things that we are doing and we think, how could this be happening? He's handing us over for spiritual attack, supremacy of the flesh, in order to humble us, in order to remind us that we need Jesus, that he is the one who died on the cross for these sins and that if we come to him, if we remember, if we return, if we repent, then he forgives, he restores, he re-engages with us again. So if we grieve the spirit, there are consequences. But they don't have to be permanent because we can return through repentance, through forsaking of sin. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this good quote. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God because if you do, you will bring upon yourself grievous experiences and agonies of soul. Grievous experiences and agonies of soul that you need never have had simply because we have not responded to his promptings, not been fully obedient to what he is wanting us to do. We have lived as if he was not part of us. And this morning I said, so how should we live? Well, we should deliberately, intentionally, consciously remind ourselves that we are children of God and that he, the Spirit of God, is living within us. I wake up every morning, as I said this morning, almost every morning, I say, good morning, Lord because it's him prompting me. There are times I wake up when I don't say good morning, Lord. And I wouldn't be surprised if I reflected on that and evaluated it. The times I don't wake up and say good morning, Lord, first words out of my mouth, are the times when I have grieved him. There's some sin, there's something I've done wrong that's not right, and he's not nudging me first thing in the morning. So wake up intentionally and think through, wherever I go today, Whatever my timetable is, my schedule is, whatever I'm involved in, my job or whatever activities I'm involved in, wherever I go, whatever I do, or whatever happens to me, he is with me. And I am to live in the light of that truth. My every thought, word and deed to be lived in his presence. And that these things will help us, assist us to not grieve the spirit. It's a tall order, isn't it? But it's possible. Not in our own strength, but by his promptings. He assists us through this whole process. He nudges us, read your Bible. He nudges us, pray more. He nudges us, have fellowship with people. Ring this person, pray for that person. That's the spirit of God at work within us. He prepares us. And so our attitude needs to be, Lord, if you prompt me, I will obey. If you want me to change something in my life, I will comply. If you want me to do something, be that to serve or to share, I'm available. To have that attitude 
to lay our lives open before him and to make sure that we conduct some sort of daily evaluation to make sure that we're on track. You know, Lord, is there anything in my life at the end of the day? Is there anything I said today, did today, thought today, which is not pleasing to you, which has grieved you? Keep short accounts with him. Any promptings that you want me to do that I haven't followed through on? Do I have a tendency to want to postpone or am I inclined to just, you know, delay them, put them off, modify them? God calls us to be fully compliant and obedient to him. That's the first passage. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, thought, word or deed in our life. The Thessalonian context is a slightly different context. It's almost as if you could argue that the Ephesians passage is for us individually, that we as individual followers of the Lord Jesus are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Thessalonian passage um, that Liana read to us talks about uh, do not put out the Spirit's fire, don't quench the Spirit, don't treat prophecies with contempt but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject whatever is harmful. It has not an individual focus but rather a corporate focus. If the Spirit of God says something to us as a church, help us as a church, as a congregation, um, not to be resistant, not to water it down, not to quench it. The Roman soldiers used to have shields. Ephesians 6 talks about um, quenching the fiery darts of the evil one, and that's the same word, to quench. They used to dip their shields in water so that when firing, fiery arrows were shot at them, the fiery arrows would hit their shields, leather shields covered in water, and they would be doused. And the Apostle Paul is saying to us, don't do that to the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fires at you a word of conviction or a word of direction or a guidance or a prompting, don't dampen it. Don't squash it. Be responsive to it. Dr. Broughton Knox, who was the principal of um, Moore College in Sydney, once had the experience where a student came to the lectern in the chapel service and was glazed over in his eyes and seemed to be in another world. And he started talking. And the more he spoke, and he spoke for a few minutes, the more he spoke, the more it became like gibberish and nonsense. And eventually Dr. Knox came and grabbed him by the arm and let him out. The guy, in fact, had had a mental breakdown. And other students questioned Dr. Knox. They said, questioned him later and they said to him, how come you didn't go up earlier? To which he very wisely said, I wanted to be able to discern whether this was a word from the Lord, whether this was the voice of the Spirit to us or not. We have to be open and not closed. We have to be discerning, not gullible. That's what Paul is instructing us as a church to do to not quench the spirit because he goes on in the context don't quench the spirit's fire in our english bibles which are often you know terrific in their translations but the esv the niv and the new rsv they all translate all of this differently they all have two or three sentences in greek there's only one sentence don't put out the spirit's fire don't treat prophecies with contempt are linked. They're not separated. We quench the spirit in Paul's context by resisting someone coming and sharing a prophetic word 
It's either the preaching of God's word or it's the sharing of what they think God is saying. Test them. Discern. Hold on to what is good. But what is not good, put aside. Reject. So there is a ministry of the Spirit that we need to be open to. In a very early church, the reality of this became a problem. And there was a document written called the Didache about 50, 60 years after the New Testament. And on this, they, they give very practical instruction on um, many issues. On this particular issue, on prophecy, if a prophet comes to your church, and there were travelling prophets in those days, like travelling evangelists and so on, if a prophet comes, here is the test. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. If the prophet comes and he, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, give money, well, that might be the Spirit. If he says, give money to me, that's not the Spirit. If he says, give money to the needy, that would be the Spirit. If a prophet comes and preaches and his life is not consistent with what he's preaching, he's not from the Lord. And if a prophet comes and stays more than two days living off the church, supporting him, then he's not from the Lord. They came up with these very practical tests to try and discern, to try and be open to, well, the Lord might want to be doing something. But on the other hand, we also need to be wise shepherds to protect the flock. Um, So a more contemporary example is a tele-evangelists who have just extended their... Um, particular offering in this particular case it was a Passover offering and they've extended it by 30 days that if you send money in then you will certainly receive blessings then it's not unwise for us to be critical and discerning and saying that's not the Lord he does not work that way we are to be listening and discerning of what the spirit says now that's if this passage is to be understood in terms of prophecy in the congregation. There are some commentators who say, well, it has that dimension, but it also has a a broader dimension rather than simply just preaching or prophecy or somebody coming. For instance, the work of the Holy Spirit, don't quench the work of the Spirit in you. Is the Spirit of God will want to illumine you with God's word. He will want you to understand God's word. And the way you quench that is a failure to read it a failure to study it, a failure to hear it, a failure to apply it and to obey it. That is to quench the Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit wants to develop in us an intimacy with the Father. And we can quench the work of the Spirit in us by simply not taking time alone, by being prayerless, by worrying without casting or trusting, casting our cares upon him and trusting him to work it out. That can also quench the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to help help us to know God's will through his word. We can quench the Spirit by just simply ignoring his directions and focusing upon what we think, our self-will, by being either indifferent to what he says or by delaying what he is prompting us to be doing. Or finally, The Holy Spirit certainly wants to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us more like the Lord Jesus. We can quench him through our own prideful self and relying on our own human abilities. 
trying to improve ourselves without casting ourselves upon him. We can grieve the spirit individually by disobeying him. We can quench the spirit corporately by resisting what he is wanting to say to us as a church. And then finally tonight, we can also, well, I'm not sure we can, but people can offend him and grieve him and blaspheme him. I don't know if you've got a Bible with you, but I want to read to you this passage and then take a few minutes just to talk very quickly about it. It's a difficult passage and it's a difficult concept to understand. And uh, I've moved my position of where I once thought, now I think this. And I'm not sure I'm going to stay. That This is what I think the passage means. So if you've got your Bible or if you can put the words on the screen, this is Matthew chapter 12. Here is the story in the context. <clears throat> it appears in Matthew, it appears in Mark, and it appears in Luke, and it appears in different contexts with a different emphasis. That's one thing to take note of. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished, and they said, couldn't this be the Messiah? Couldn't this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, he's not the Messiah. It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom that's divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by him do your sons or your people drive them out. So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions without first trying, tying up the strong man? Then his house can be plundered. Whoever is not against me, who is not with me, is against me. And whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, people can be, will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Strong words, aren't they? And pastorally, we need to be sensitive. Let me say this, theologically and I think pastorally, if someone comes to you or if you think this yourself, if you fear that you have committed this sin against the Spirit, you haven't. Because the very fact that you fear that you have committed this sin negates the reality of it. For a person who has committed this sin will not fear that they have committed it, will be completely indifferent to whatever God is doing in the world. When I was a very young believer, somebody told me the story, and I don't know if it's true or not, um, but I pass it on to you because it illustrates the point um, of what I'm wanting to say tonight. Young man in Scotland 
was in a tent, had been to camp meetings all that week, evangelistic meetings, had heard the preaching of the word and through frustration one night back in his tent and camp uh, made a very deliberate conscious choice having been under the conviction of the spirit all week. He said, leave me alone. And there was this sudden change. He suddenly no longer felt convicted. He felt God had left him. And the story as it was told to me was then he went in search of God. What would you say? Had he committed this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Uh, Well, my answer is no, he hadn't. Because if he had of, there would be no sense of what have I done. Now he's searching and seeking God. Um, I think the people who commit the sin, this sin against the Spirit of God have a hardness of heart and a stubbornness and a recalcitrance where they are not wanting, not caring, completely indifferent to whatever God thinks of them. Their minds are made up. There are various views on this passage. There are some people, and I used to be one of those, who thought it's no longer possible for anybody to commit this sin. It could only be committed in the first century. That Jesus had to be here in the flesh. He had to say it of Jesus that the spirit that was in him is not the Holy Spirit, but it's a demonic spirit, and that he's no longer here in the flesh, so then you can no longer say it. I used to think that, and I think I may have even told some of you that. I no longer think that that's the case, and the only reason I have moved my opinion is because this passage is written after the ascension of Jesus. This is written to the New Testament church, and so therefore it's likely that it's still a possibility There are those who believe, secondly, that it's possible, but only in specific situations where there is great demonstration of miracles and of God's power. And that you are saying, this is not the spirit of God who's doing this, this is a demonic spirit, we're all being deceived. And that we need to be very careful in evaluating Pentecostal charismatic experiences. There are some people who take that view. Or there are people like myself now who think that it's still possible for people, not Christians, I don't think Christians can commit this sin, as I'll explain, I trust. But rather, you have to be an unbeliever to commit this sin. And it's still possible to do it. Because it's blasphemy against the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus uses very strong terms, that it is impossible. You will not be forgiven. You render forgiveness out. Well, what is it? In my opinion... I think what the Lord Jesus is talking about is this conscious, deliberate, intentional defiance, this um, attribution of that is not God at work in in that person, but it is rather demonic. It is to say that to others and to hinder them from coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, like the Pharisees were on this occasion. There are certainly people who have committed blasphemy. The Apostle Paul did, he says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, but found forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says that all sin can be forgiven. But Jesus says there is one exception to that, and it's this one, this blasphemy against the Spirit. It seems to be more serious and it's without remedy. It reflects a determined unbelief. Regardless of the evidence that I see, Jesus has just performed a miracle. A person who was demonised has been delivered. A person who was blind and could not speak suddenly is able to do that. 
and it is a growing amount of evidence. This is not a one-off, it's not a spontaneous thing, it's not sudden, something they just said suddenly on the spur of the moment, it's rather a considered, deliberate evaluation and they have concluded for whatever reasons that they will not acknowledge that this is the work of God in the person of Jesus. It's a permanent refusal to believe and because of that, therefore, it is unforgivable. It is unforgivable because they will not place themselves on the path that leads to forgiveness. They saw divine power at work in the Lord Jesus but refused to accept the implications. For them, it's very simple. There are two divine, uh, there are two supernatural powers. There is God and there is Satan. They refused to be open to the possibility that Jesus could be from God. Therefore, it's from Satan. And it's because of that process of what they heard, what they saw, yet they intentionally charge him, Jesus, with deceit, with falsehood, with being demonised. And they do that publicly. They do that before others to prevent others coming to faith. So what can God do? What more can he do? He has demonstrated through Jesus, he has demonstrated through his word, the reality of the Messiah. But these people have resisted it. What more can God do? Therefore, because of that, their sin is unpardonable. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 talks about how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, they were neglecting it. The other thing to say before I close with this is simply to point out this is a warning of the Lord Jesus. He is warning them. He's not saying they've done it, but they are skating very close to the edge. And if they persist in this attitude, they will render themselves unforgivable. It's by their own choice. So it's a warning passage. They were close. It's dangerous, but not yet deadly. And it's a specific um, activity that they engage in ongoingly. This is the blasphemy against the spirit, as best as I can understand it. It's not a one-off callous uh, remark. Uh, personal friend of mine, Michael, in Sydney. Um, what's his name? Uh, the English comedian, Johnny English, whatever. Rowan Atkinson. In a, in a movie called um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, in the movie, he's conducting a wedding service and he quotes, I haven't seen the movie, but he quotes it in terms of, instead of saying Father, Son and Holy Spirit, I think he says Father, Son and, does he say Holy Goat or something like that? And Michael, who had seen the film, went, oh, he's committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's used a derogatory term against the Spirit. I don't think that's what the Lord Jesus is saying. He's not talking about people who utter spontaneously ignorant, arrogant, derogatory words. He's talking rather about a settled disposition of opposition. People who intentionally say, that's not God. It's not true. I refuse to accept it. And it's by that refusal and by that attitude that they render themselves unpardonable, unforgivable. Is it possible for a person to go, that's not God, I don't accept it, and then later on change their minds and find acceptance? 
My answer is yes. They haven't committed the unforgivable sin because they haven't persisted in that attitude. It's those who persist in that attitude that render themselves unforgivable. Make sense? I want to talk about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight at the conclusion of this series we want to acknowledge your goodness, your kindness in orchestrating the plan of salvation, of the Son's execution of the plan and of the Spirit's impartation and working out of that plan of salvation. We are the recipients of your goodness and of your grace. We as followers of Jesus are the temples of your spirit. Help us, Lord, as disciples of Jesus, not to grieve the spirit individually, not to quench the spirit corporately, and give us wisdom and grace in dealing with outsiders who are resistant to the spirit, to pray for them and to give us, Lord, wisdom, insight, the words uh, that people might come to faith in him. We thank you for the wonderful, gentle gift of the Spirit. May we be compliant to his promptings and obedient to his will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.